Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Oscar season continues here at Below the Line, and we're now in the home stretch. Today, we're talking about achievement in music written for motion pictures, better known as original score. And I'm happy to welcome back last year's panel. Louis Weeks, media and film composer. Thanks for being here, my friend. Glad to be here. Next, Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and host of the Slate podcast, Hit Parade. Great to see you, Chris. Great to see you, Skin. And finally, Jenny Arman, executive producer and music supervisor with more than 15 years of music industry experience. Welcome back, Jenny. Thanks for having me back. Now, as listeners know, I've been pushing IMDb this month, not because Amazon is paying me any money, but it is a good way to learn more about my guests. Search for Below the Line, find this episode, and click on their names to see their other film credits. Okay, we're off to the races. The 2023 original score nominees are American Fiction, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. Apologies in advance if I mispronounce anyone's name, and my guests know they're welcome to correct me. Let's start with American Fiction, score by Laura Karpman. This is such a beautiful movie and such a beautiful score and like surprising um, on all counts. I was really moved by this this film um, and I love the score. I mean, uh, Laura Cartman's work is really interesting. Um, her body of work is fascinating to me in, in terms of all the work is tonally kind of different. Um, some comparisons for Laura's recent work for this score might be the marvelous, lively, energetic jazz American songbook uh, tinged stuff. But also uh, Laura does uh, work in the Marvel universe. So this is a top rate composer who's doing a lot of different projects and has this incredible vocabulary that um, can kind of do anything for the movies. And I think ultimately like is a composer that's very in service of the story and in service of the characters, as opposed to having one sound that really kind of dominates the the movie. Um, I think that this score is really cool in its kind of maturity. Um, there's a lot of interesting musical stuff happening that isn't typically um, contemporary movie music because um, it's very complex and very harmonically um, adult. You know, I think like a lot of movie music is kind of childish, um, uh, but this is very mature harmonically. And I think a lot of that has to do with its relationship to jazz and, and specifically to the music of Thelonious Monk, which is like an obvious um, reference to the character and, and to, the, to the script. And this is just a lot to, to love listening to this score. Um, I think what's so interesting about the film is its relationship to 
kind of all the meta storytelling that happens in the film. Um, it, there are moments when there are uh, scenes within scenes and kind of commentary um, on those scenes and the music switches gears too. It becomes melodramatic when the story is melodramatic and it becomes self-referential and kind of knowing. And in my experience as a composer, that's a really complicated um, thing to do because anytime a director says, okay, now we want the music to be aware of itself and commenting on itself, it can very easily slip into a kind of parody that that ruins the whole scene. But this music handles all of these tone uh, shifts and performances within performances in a very subtle way. I think it's it, its subtlety is its kind of superpower, um, which which then leaves a lot of bandwidth for the other music, the the a lot of the jazz inspired performances to be not subtle, to be very um, flowery and to be very uh, celebratory even. I think that there's just a lot of a lot of tone shifting in this in a way that really works for the story. So I that that's that was my main takeaway from this is that this is a composer who understands a very very delicate dance of of the meta and kind of writing music that is aware of of the the perception of the music and kind of weaving in and out of how tricky that can be. Yeah, what I loved about it is it really felt, honestly, I'm just, just going to say this. It felt like I was in a Woody Allen film, <laughs> um, like watching the like beautiful piano and the jazz, the American jazz, and just very reminiscent. It also, to be honest, to me, felt a little dated, like it, it almost belonged in like the 90s, dare I say, um, with certain like structural things but i i really loved her take on it and um i really liked the element of improvisation where um you didn't really know where the piano was going to go necessarily and i love that about Thelonious monk as well um and yeah i agree it really tells the story through the music versus just kind of having music sit there i love what she's done in the past as well as with like uh, like the roots and you know I feel like she really like just settles into her jazz knowledge and approach and I thought she was yeah I thought she did a really wonderful job with this film I th I think you hit the nail on the head with the dated comment and I think that that's a really intentional piece of characterization for this family um, and this lead character right because I mean he himself is dated in a way Totally. And these these are adults who are entering into their middle age and their relationship with this, this musical style is going to sound older than, than a, than a contemporary take on a jazz infused score. And I really loved that because I think that it made me understand kind of where these characters were in their life. Um, in a way that felt again like in totally in service of the characters as opposed to a composer flexing their muscles about like their chops you know production wise or or kind of their their knowledge of 
of what what would today sound like? What's contemporary today? I think it just shows a lot of maturity from like a compositional standpoint. I totally agree. And um, I'll just say to start that I think this was my favorite discovery among the five nominated scores, because I think it's my favorite to listen to as music, meaning I could play this as an album. Um, it is really wonderful, you know, jazz. Um, I don't know, you know, a hardcore jazz bow might quibble with it, you know, uh, but I, it, I thought it was masterfully done. Um, I read up a little bit about um, Laura Cartman and she's really versatile. I mean, speaking of the datedness, I mean, this is somebody who's again, scored for Marvel a number of times and works in various idioms. There's a wonderful profile of her in Vanity Fair in which she reveals that she kind of decided early on that this should be jazz. So it's not as if she's like an all jazz composer who said, oh, well, you've hired me, ergo, you're getting jazz. It's like she read the script, she listened to what Cord Jefferson, the director of the film, wanted to do and said, this middle-aged man, whose name, by the way, is you know Thelonious, and everybody nicknames him Monk, you know, jazz is obviously where this has to be. And then the other thing that fascinated me in the Vanity Fair profile was she revealed that, and I, you two can speak to this better than I can as actual score composers, she, you know, had things set up in various pieces for timings and beats that it had to hit to match the drama on screen. But then she intentionally, this charmed me, she left in measures or pieces where you guys can improv here. And she let her jazz players actually do, okay, you've got four bars here where you can improv, just go nuts. And then this, I need you to meet here, here, and here. And that fascinated me just in terms of the mechanics of that, because the end product is very mellifluous and, and delightful to listen to. Um, and I would also say, and I, this is going to come up when we get to some of the other scores, this is a fairly supportive and unobtrusive score to me. Um, I saw the movie. I enjoyed the movie. I didn't focus on the score that much, but whenever I heard it, I liked it. But it is not a score that jumps up and down and shouts at you. Um, and for that reason, I don't know. It might well be my favorite of the five, just as music. And, you know, in terms of gaming it out, I mean, I think it'll be a long shot for... Uh, you know, Cartman to take the prize, you know, American fiction has an uphill battle in the race this year anyway, despite its many deserved nominations. Um, but this, this is somebody who's won an Emmy for her work and been nominated for multiple Emmys. She's very versatile. You can sort of see this as like an initial nomination that could lead to something in a, in a future race. I'd be delighted if she actually won, but at the very least, this kind of gets her in there for the first time, which is nice. I love that you said that this is an album that you can listen to just as a human <laughs> because yeah, it, yeah, it's just, you can just settle into it with like, I don't know, a bourbon <laughs> and just sit there and exactly, you know, light a candle, the mood. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the improvisational aspect is really cool. And also the subtlety of it, the fact that it wasn't in our faces, like those, the characters are subtle and they're beautiful. They're like really, oh, the cast is just amazing. And also the main characters, improvisational skills in order to really create this storyline. So yeah, it really subtly ties in. You know, Chris, to your, to your point, I think that 
jazz's relationship to film scoring um is uh a you know relatively old uh relationship um not as not as old as like film itself but it's it it's very like you know hollywood film um but it goes back you know many many decades and that technique of letting the players kind of react to the picture or Im improvise within certain guidelines is frankly like is is very standard for a a jazz score and even non-jazz scores that that you know James Horner used to do that um hmm. uh, with his players and and you know famously it is a way a lot of composers like to work but what i think it works about in this film is that it's a it's kind of a chamber approach um that mirrors the 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 way that the film uses its characters right it puts them in rooms together and it lets those characters interact um it puts them in rooms together and and lets the kind of situations unfold as opposed to big set pieces that are choreographed and everyone has to hit their mark exactly there's a lot of breathing room within the performances of the film um that the music mirrors really nicely um and i think that that is uh in a way this film and its relationship to music kind of reminded me of a movie we we covered a couple years ago marriage story and hmm. that the music has a kind of bed-like quality it is not super mickey moused uh in the sense that it's not hitting certain action points and it's not following character movement and but it, it's kind of always there and it's providing a vibe um and that vibe is really, really pleasant and wonderful to listen to. Uh, and again, it's it's a, another chamber film about characters in rooms having conversations that are that are very meaningful to them and and really engaging to listen in on. Um, you know, like a marriage story that that was that was also a record that I just kind of looped um, without really watching the movie over and over again because. You know, one was all I needed. Um, but uh, I think that I think it's it to me. It, it reminds me a lot of of that film in a way. And who doesn't love impro improvisation? By the way, <laughs> yes, and we can all agree that going to a live jazz performance and just watching them do their thing and have that musical conversation is it's magical. Yeah. Also, you hear it too. Um, I think we talked about this in in the Babylon segment of last year's where the, the to me the analogy is is one-to-one -one. you know a, a musical performer laying down a, a recorded performance on a film score is very much like an actor giving a performance there is a kind of one-to-one -one relationship and movies that have great performances that are rooted in kind of a humanity like a person did this and we got it on film or we got it on a record that's timeless you that will always work um and i think that that's that's one of the magics of this approach it's like oh man they brought in some really great session players who really did their thing on this on the score next on our list is indiana jones and the dial of destiny score by john williams never heard of him who's that some old dude right johnny yeah the young whippersnapper yeah <laughs>
Uh, I was trying to think. I look back on this. I don't think that John Williams has ever even been. Well, he's he's never won for an Indiana Jones score, which is shocking. Do we know if he's been nominated for an Indiana Jones score? Uh, I think he was Indiana. I think he was for the first one. Um, but the fact that he hasn't won for Indiana Jones is a kind of mind blowing. Give me a second. I'll check. In terms of film music, Mount Rushmore. Indiana Jones has got to be on there. In that sense, I think it's very possible that he wins this award. He was uh, nominated for the first Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, he was nominated for Temple of Doom. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, he was nominated in the year he was nominated for Last Crusade for the movie year 1989. He was also nominated for Born on the Fourth of July. So he was competing against himself that year. And then neither one won. He lost to The Little Mermaid, Alan Menken. So yes, he has been nominated for Indiana Jones before. I think we can all agree that, I, well, I don't know. I was tapping into my younger, much, much younger self with this film. And even though I was like, ah, I need to watch this, bummer. But actually it's... This <laughs> collection, as far as Indiana Jones goes, is so fun. He has it down to his science as far as how to create suspense, how to create intrigue, how to create uh, mystery and scheming. And I just, it it's just such a fun score. Like he, he just, he knows he could do it in his sleep. He's no whippersnapper spring chicken. <laughs> well, Jenny, I think you're like... The, the, you're totally right. The, this is, um, in a lot of ways, I think that the Indiana Jones movies are kind of visualizers of a John Williams album. Like, it, they're kind of just like, here, something to look at while you listen to this music. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about about what Indiana Jones would be like if they didn't have him. And I think it would be, uh, it, it would essentially be like if they didn't have Harrison Ford. Um, he is so pivotal to the to the story that you kind of can't do it without him. I can kind of see how they could do it without Spielberg, um, because he is so, uh, like he's been so seeped into the visual language that people understand of of contemporary filmmaking. But no one can do John Williams. And so if they tried to do this without him, I think it would be so unlistenable and unwatchable that, that you know, in a lot of ways, that it is the whole point of this movie. But I also think like, as these later era um, Indiana Jones become less practical and more CGI, John Williams becomes even more important because the grounding in reality uh, is lost when we start to have set pieces like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and the, some of the set pieces of like driving around cities that like are not real, you know, in, in this, in this movie. And I think that as these films become more and more about their relationship to, to digital um, imaginary places and filmmaking, I think John Williams scores are more and more important because they ground us in a kind of tactile analog 
this really happened physicality. So, you know, as the films, I think, get less and less like the originals in that, that sense, the music still is working overtime to evoke the magic of, of you know, the practical boulder rolling down the the tunnel or, you know, some of the stuff in, in the, the original three. That that's my main feeling about how this this music functions is that it's it's keeping the the magic of the practical filmmaking alive as Spielberg transitions into you know a, a more of a CGI approach with these characters. I'd like to throw a question at Louis and Jenny because we were talking about John Williams just last year because he was nominated for the Fablemans he did not win, but how how do you all feel about this score which is full of what I in pop music terms would call classic John Williams bangers, right? That stirring theme, which recurs throughout the score. It's practically a pop song at this point um, versus what he was doing last year in the Fablemans. I mean, what do we think about why this got nominated versus why something like Fablemans gets nominated? I think it's just so reminiscent. Like it is, we, I, I, I assume the majority of at least Americans <laughs> have this story woven into their their childhoods and their upbringings like it it is it's such a staple and I feel like it I think he is a darling to the academy <laughs> 48 nominations in this category alone FYI yeah they want him to win you know like he is a he is a staple in the approach of traditional composition and I, he works his ass off. Sorry. He works his butt off <laughs> in order to do that. Um, yeah. I don't think there's any doubt in our minds that he is, it will always be a, the goat most likely in my opinion. It has been a while since he's won. He's been nominated a bunch of times in the last decade but I don't think he's won in about 20 years. I would have to double check this. And I think when we were discussing him last year in terms of the Fablemans, we were saying it wouldn't hurt if, you know, good old John Williams over age 90 were to actually win this sucker one more time. Um, he doesn't need it per se. He's already established as the goat to use Jenny's term, but you know, what he's doing is so legendary. I mean, and untouchable. Uh, and the reason I brought up the difference between this and Fablemans is Fablemans was fascinating for me because I was impressed with the Fablemans, but it wasn't relying on any signature John Williams trope or theme or motif, right? I mean, I won't, you know, hurt your ears by me singing these theme songs, but if I asked you, sing me Indiana Jones, sing me Superman, sing me Star Wars, everybody, kids can do it, right? Those are pop songs, essentially. Fableman's last year was not that. Um, and I think Fableman's, Fableman's, if I remember correctly, got blanked on last year's Oscars. Not only didn't it win best score, it didn't win anything, unfortunately, for Spielberg, which surprised a lot of people. And this is more classic John Williams. I mean, when that motif came up, as I was listening to the album straight through the other day, I mean, you'd think I'd be sick of it by now, but it's it's like a great Beatles song at this point. It's like, you know, it's a classic um, and it's so stirring. Um, and Williams, one of his great gifts, and I'm sure you two can speak to this better than I can, is like a jazz player, he can take a motif and play around with it and infuse it into other things. And the way 
you know, it's kind of like taking something that we know through five or I guess four previous films. This is the fifth and making it new again. That's a skill. Um, and, you know, I'd be surprised if he won this year. I don't think the odds are with him this year, especially given that the Indiana Jones movie was frankly lucky just to be nominated, given how it it didn't tank at the box office, but it badly underperformed at the box office last year. So this nomination is probably the prize, but you know, what he does here is, is almost, I don't want to say harder than it sounds because I think everybody knows it's hard, but it, you know, it's relying on a classic theme. And I think people take for granted how difficult it is to make something like that fresh again. Yeah. I mean, I think that if, if he, the difference between Fableman's and difference between um, Indiana Jones you know, this latest movie, the difference between these nominations is, is basically the difference between a recognition of, of outstanding work versus a lifetime achievement award. Um, if you give it to him for this film, I think it's, it would be widely, it would be fair to say this is a, in recognition of all of the past Indiana Jones movies because it's so part of the past four you know, in a lot of ways, Indiana Jones, and, and this is going to get very meta and dorky, but I've been thinking about Indiana Jones, the music as like John Williams is kind of like one of those rooms that Indiana Jones stumbles into. Like he, it's like a, he's these, this project is all about archive. <laughs> like there's so many pieces of Indiana Jones musical material that have to be organized and archived and deployed as each of these movies come out, that it almost kind of becomes a kind of uh, exercise in organization and um, like meta tagging. <laughs> like, okay, well, we use this theme in this, this, and this way in the last four films. Like, we obviously have to do it this way, but there's it really becomes a, a, a project of, of archiving in, in a unique way, I think. I also think that John Williams, his super strength. I think a lot of people will jump right to his themes. And I think that's um, very true. But to me, and I think a lot of people who go super deep on John Williams, you start to recognize that the power of those themes is entirely based on how well he handles non-thematic material. Hmm. He once famously said that if you want themes, film scoring can, I, I think he said basically that film scoring can be summed up by one record. It's the Rite of Spring. For the themes, you take the A side. And for everything else, you take the B side. Hmm. And the B sides are all the kind of serialist, atonal, tone painting, textural stuff that gives every movie that he does a kind of sense of magic. It's the stuff that it feels like lighting. It feels like shadow. It feels like fog. It feels like there's something elemental about it. And then the A-sides are all the characters. It's the horn fanfares. It's the string. It's the romantic string stuff. But I think in order to have the career that John Williams has had, you have to be so tactical about how you handle the non-thematic stuff that when you pop with that horn theme or the string theme, it feels so good. And I think that it's possible that everyone for the rest of time, the first line in his, in all of the 
books written about him or his obituary or or everything that we all talk about will be his theme work. But I think that you don't get that unless you have a true understanding of how to handle uh, the tone painting stuff. And that's dialogue. That's a camera movement. That's um, a shadow going across a wall. All the stuff that you don't really hear, you just kind of feel it. And you're like, ooh, the hairs on the back of my neck just stood up. Um, that's my take on John Williams. I think that he'll go down in history as the theme guy. But I think that what he really, really does better than anybody else is um, the down and dirty work of of non-thematic material that you it just feels like it's wallpaper, but it's the best wallpaper that's ever been created. One last point I just checked, and uh, to be specific, Mr. Williams has not won the Oscar in 30 years, and the last one he won it for was Schindler's List, which I think we can agree was not theme work. It was the the brilliantly elaborated wallpaper that Louis is talking about. So he has won for that kind of work, but uh, I agree with your summary thesis about him. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the best example is Star Wars. Um, you know, anytime you s the transitions... Those, those wipes from one scene to another, he'll kind of use this, the splash of textures, you know, on the sand or on in the jungle. And it's like, it's so effective and no one could ever, ever tell you what's happening in those chords. Um, but that's the stuff you're like, boom, John Williams, I got it. I know it from a mile away, you know? And I think that the Academy's not really in the business of rewarding subtlety. Um, so, you know, that's not never the thing that he'll be praised for. I think if he wins for this, uh, this film, it will be a kind of lifetime achievement award for his, his contributions with all the Indiana Jones films. And I think that that's cool because that music, it slaps. You're here. <laughs> it's a banger and it slaps. Lily, your thesis about John Williams being central to these films reminded me uh, in doing a little bit of research on this. I read that John Williams was going to executive produce the score, but then got engaged and ended up writing the whole thing. So I wonder about this idea of moving forward and actually what that does mean for the Indiana Jones franchise going forward. Right. Well, that's such a good question. I mean, I think that first of all, I think it's worth saying that John Williams is a singular voice in film composition, but he is by no means the only person who works on his scores. He's got a team of people who who he relies on, like every professional composer. And kind of like I said earlier, I think that these movies are an exercise in musical archiving, where whatever the next couple, you know, infinite Indiana Jones movies that there will be, until there's a hard reboot, which I can't imagine there being, um, but maybe there will be kind of like the Daniel Craig Bond thing until there's a hard, like tonal reboot. The music of these movies will always be about how can we organize and faithfully, but with some originality, uh, deploy all of the music that we have in the John Williams warehouse. And I think um, it's going to be kind of a process of like, here's all the source material that we have. Here's how we do it. And um, here's how we, we did it in the last couple of movies when we passed the baton to the next people. Um, 
you know, here's here's the blueprint for how it'll happen. I think it it has become so formalized um, uh, as a genre in and of itself that I think that the future of the films will be more about adhering to the formula um, than they will be about a kind of authorial, authorial, um, an authorial voice saying, I am the composer this is my Indiana Jones. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think it's going to be all about, this is what Indiana Jones sounds like and and we're going to do it. And maybe there's a couple new scenes and maybe there's a unique take on this dynamic, but but this is what you've paid um, to see and, and hear and, and this is how we're going to deliver. So I really don't think that, that John Williams not being involved personally is going to change the DNA of the film. But I do think that uh, it's, it's essentially an exercise in in legacy uh kind of estate maintenance if that makes sense with that we'll move on to our third film killers of the flower moon score by robbie robertson The score is really fantastic. Um, in terms of production, it, I think it might be my favorite score to listen to. It's so beautifully produced and so so rich. Like the recordings are just so rich and so they've got so much personality to them. Um, I have to be honest. I mean, Scorsese films, I, I, I really don't go to them for the music. Um I've, I've never really had a strong connection to how uh, to what I'm hearing when I listen to a Scorsese film. I understand the the way that Scorsese uses both needle drop licensed music and score uh, as a kind of, you know, more of a uh, postmodern, um, you know, almost like more, more of a, a extension of the editing than of of traditional score writing but i really like the score and i'm glad that um that we have it i mean i think if it'll be interesting to see if this award will be given posthumously to the composer um and uh you know i think it's such a huge piece of work the film is such a huge momentous piece of work that in a lot of ways the score sits back and and lets a lot of other aspects of the film take the forefront. So I I don't think that this is a front runner um, in the category, but I do think it's a really beautiful piece of of movie music making. Um, it's very non traditional um, and it's very idiosyncratic and it's very um, it's wonderful to listen to. There's so much grit and raw energy in this score. I mean, oh, what a story. I love that they leaned into traditional Native American elements. And um, and I had a friend that was on the music supervision side of this, um, the queen, Nora Nalepka, um, who worked alongside uh, Megan Courier. 
um, and Shenley West. And I, I know for a fact that they did everything in their power to make this as authentic as possible. It's such a gut-wrenching story. It's hard to watch this family just be ugh, just given to the wolves. Um, I was so sad to hear about Robbie Robertson's passing because he has such a legacy of amazing films like Last Waltz and Raging Bull. I remember watching in college and just being like, what? I agree with you as far as uh, Louis, as far as Martin Scorsese films, I don't think that they always shine so bright, but I feel like this, like even just the Osage oil boom was just, it literally, it just set the tone. It, it, it puts you in a moment of the, where you were like, as far as a Western, it could have been a current piece, even though it was a period piece back in the day. Um, you feel this mischief and this like tough mentality of like everything that these characters will have to do and go forth with on their conscious. And I just, I love the authenticity of it. I loved the, the dirt behind it. I really loved this score. Well, not to run completely counter to what Louie and Jenny just said, but I will say that as a pop song fan, and I realize that's different from what we're discussing here today, I often look forward to the music in Scorsese films because he is Mr. Needledrop. Um, they, some of them are legendary. Tell me that you don't think of Goodfellas and think of the use of the second half of Layla by Derek and the Dominoes when they do the montage of all the dead bodies or the many times he's used Gimme Shelter by the Stones or the way he uses unusual pieces of music like um, the cover of uh, Satisfaction by Devo in Casino of all things. Um, his use of, or, you know, Be My Baby way, way back on Mean Streets in 1973. So, but not to actually disagree with either of you, that is different from what we're discussing here. I take your point that you don't often go to a Scorsese film for score. And his relationship with Robertson was a very special one. It was very, it's like Spielberg with John Williams. I mean, John Williams has that relationship with multiple directors, mostly with Spielberg, but the symbiotic relationship between um, Scorsese and Robertson was a decades long one uh, there's a hilarious quote in, that I found after um, Robertson died. I believe it's in the second Peter Biscond book. Uh, I think it's Down in Dirty Pictures when he's talking about the film boom of the 70s. And they say it's such a shame that Marty wasn't gay because his relationship with Robbie is the closest relationship he's ever had with anybody, including any of his wives. I mean, that's how tight they were. What I find fascinating about this score, again, speaking like a music critic and a pop fan, I'm going to borrow something Jenny said before when we were talking about American fiction. It's charmingly dated. And it's dated to me, if anybody on the call is familiar with a 1987 Robbie Robertson album simply titled Robbie Robertson, it's produced by Daniel Lanois. It's kind of a landmark of very 80s sounding atmospheric. Picture Peter Gabriel circus so. That's what this score sounds like to me. It's dated to about 35 to 40 years ago. And I ain't mad at it. Um, and of course it should be said because Robertson was himself a member of the six nations of, you know, the Toronto area. Um, he is of native descent himself. This is a homecoming for Robertson more than 
you know, he he got nominated for The Color of Money with Scorsese. He got he worked on other King of Comedy with Scorsese. He's worked on all sorts of different films. In a sense, there's a poetry to the last score he works on in his lifetime and getting nominated for posthumously being about the Osage uh, and, and about an American native tribe. Um, you can't make a more poetic conclusion to his body of work. So generally, I really love this score. I love the richness of it, um, the rich, if you will pardon this unintended pun, tapestry of what it's weaving. And um, and I just, I love the backstory of it. I, I agree that it's probably a long shot in the category given a nominee that we haven't talked about yet, but um, I think it's great that he was nominated. It's it's a real tribute to his long relationship with Marty. I also think that, that you know, when you think about Scorsese, you know, as kind of the, one of the, the archetypes of, of the auteur, right? And I think that score often goes a long way to conveying to an audience about um, the authorship, the person behind the movie making. When you think about an orchestral score, it it obscures a lot of the um, authorship of the music because you're thinking about a large group of people making music together, just on a psychological level. But this score is, it really hammers home a kind of auteur approach to the music making because it's so sparse, because you can identify individual instruments that are playing sometimes as solo, sometimes in duos. And I think that the that the pairing of that with a Scorsese film is really smart. I think there have been other scores that Scorsese has done, um, you know, I'm uh where it's larger, um, grander orchestral stuff. And I just it it doesn't work for me as much because I think that the DNA of a Scorsese film is about the unique voice that's behind it. And I think matching that with Robbie Robertson's auteur style of, of composition, it, it makes a lot of sense. There's also some curation on this score where not every piece is, you know, necessarily Robertson's hand directly on uh, the very last uh, track whose title I will not try to pronounce, but it means a song for my people is the Osage tribal singers uh, which is, you know, that wonderful sequence you see at the end of the movie, not to spoil anything, of the drum circle and the singers all singing together. And, you know, they made space in this score for that kind of music. And, um, you know, the, the whole, the making of this movie, and it's been the subject of much discussion and even debate um, over, you know, Scorsese deciding to point the story more in the direction of the Osage rather than the FBI and trying as hard as he could, and some Osage think he pulled it off and some think he didn't, to be true to the spirit of the the tribe and the culture. Um, you know, this score is laboring in that direction too. And I think, as, at least as a score, it largely succeeds. Right. And I think, I think that having the music be so personal and being so, uh, so auteur- sounding really does outline a lot of Scorsese's choices about making editorial decisions. Um, it's not presented as objective, um, you know, the way that like, uh, if we heard choirs and orchestras, it might feel as if this is an objective 
um, piece of storytelling, it's very personal and, and has a subjective um, element to it, which really does help amplify the the complexity of the story and and the kind of of um, ambiguity of of how to tell a story like this. Um, so yeah, I, I I do think the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, oh man, maybe this score rules. Um, it's, it's 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 it creeps up on on me, and so um, it crept up on me too. I was kind of just okay on it, and then the longer I played it, the more I loved it. Actually, I loved it from the start. Jenny wins, <laughs> <laughs> but I I did like how sparse it was. It allowed the space to really tell that story and. I've been, I've worked on campaigns that they really try to dig into uh, heritage and it can get real, real sticky. Oof. Oh yeah. Oh, Just yeah. makes you want to take a shower. <laughs> so I thought they did a really great job executing this. I would love to speak with an actual Native American and see their take on this as well. I think as a, as a bystander, I was very impressed. Chris, when you mentioned that last track, actually, that, has been nominated as original for in the original song category. I, it has, and we're going to talk about it. So that's an interesting kind of split on that and how that kind of walks that line. But uh, yeah, yeah listeners come back. Uh, we'll be there next, not today, but we'll be there next. Where we're going next is the fourth film on our list. Oppenheimer score by Ludwig Göransson. Okay, I'm just going to say I walked into Oppenheimer. Well, I sat on my couch with Oppenheimer. Don't judge me. I should have seen it on the big screen. Thinking that I was going to hate this film because of the hype, the Barbie Oppenheimer hype of what it was. But the very first song that Ludwig did, as far as can you hear the music? I mean, he did Fish In first, but then can you hear the music? I was... I think can can you hear the music came first, right? It's the second track on the score, but I think you may be right that it's like practically the earliest piece of music. I don't know. I was literally blown away. I turned to the people I was watching with and I said, "Holy crap." <laughs> I I loved what he did as far as like layering and building and upping the tempo and adding in electronic elements to traditional instrumentation. And I actually was very like, I, I thought of the theory of everything by Johan Johansson. And I just loved that score so much. I, I loved everything about this track specifically. I didn't feel like it was woven in as much as I would have liked but if you just walked into this theater and watched that first moment with this track, I mean, this composer has has done so, he has so many accolades. Like he has worked with artists that I 
I honor, I, I am uh, obsessed with Childish Gambino, Alicia Keys, Rihanna, Chance the Rapper, Kendrick Lamar. Like he knows what he's doing. And aside from that, Fruitvale Station and the Mandalorian, you know, collection was, it, it, it just, he, it really blew my mind. Honestly, I was like, okay, I judged this incorrectly. <laughs> he really brought it home. And I, I was just obsessed. I've listened to this, um, this score uh, many times since, and I don't know, it, it just evokes something in you that is just, you can't even describe it. I actually also thought about, um, uh, everything everywhere all at once that we talked about last year. And I just, it just felt like, like this culmination of learnings that he learned along the way that he just picked up and made this beautiful snowball <laughs> with beautiful, just, oh gosh, I can't even just Bravo. I have a question since Jenny just confessed that she watched this at home. Did Louie and Skid watch it in a theater, in IMAX. I'm curious about that because it affects my opinion about this score. I saw it in the theater, largest screen possible, but not IMAX. Okay. Louis, you? I saw it at home. To be honest, I probably won't be able to see this movie on a big screen until the twins go to college. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> <laughs> With two children under two, I can tell you, uh, it was a little difficult to dip out for a three-hour movie. But I will say that I totally am. It's like it's marked on my. It's I have Google like alert waiting for this thing to come back because I feel like I missed something, um, truly like special. You know, to be able to hear this on in a Dolby Atmos room would be, it's, it would be, um, you know, a real treat. And I feel like I know what you're going to say, Chris, you're going to give us the Nolan sound mixing thing. Are you going to do that? Are you going to hit us with that? I mean, I'm not going to go into great detail about it. I will say that my slate colleague, Dana Stevens, borderline hated the music in this movie oh. and, and found it like most music, not best music. Um, I will say that I half agreed with her in the sense that I saw it in an IMAX theater. I saw it Barbenheimer weekend. Yes, I actually did Barbenheimer. I saw them both on the same day. Yeah, I, that required weeks of early planning, I will tell you, because otherwise those movies sold out. And I mostly loved the movie. And visually, seeing it in an IMAX screen with the amazing everything, visuals, sound, yada, yada, was a total treat. I half agreed with Dana that this was a movie that was afraid to ever be quiet. It was it, it was like most score. It was like almost oppressive. And I will say that for this podcast that we're taping with Skid, I went back and listened to the score as a piece of music for the first time. And I found myself liking it a whole lot better, but I did find it a little much while watching the movie. Um, Nolan doesn't give you a lot of room to sort of breathe. And maybe that's intentional. I mean, it's got to be. Christopher Nolan is one of the most intentional directors we have. Um, but this, the score was one of the things I liked least when having an otherwise fantastic movie-going experience last summer. Um, and I wonder how you all feel, having watched it at home, where you can modulate the volume to your heart's content. And as score composers yourselves, if if 
this means anything to you. Um, can I drag you all into Louis's corner of musical nerdery just for like like two minutes? I'll make this as fast as possible. But <laughs> yes, please. I I okay. Welcome. We have uh, no need for name tags. Um, I know everyone. Okay, so my thesis about this piece of music is I genuinely think we could lose all other pieces of music from this film and keep Can You Hear the Music? Because- Interesting. Completely agree. I think that Ludwig split the fucking atom on this one. He did it. Not only did he do it for the film, but he created the most Christopher Nolan piece of music of all time. It is- it's like a piece of music that was sent from like movie gods directly into Christopher Nolan's brain. Like, do not stop, do not collect $200. And the reason why is a couple of reasons. First of all, I think on the on past, we've talked about like how Bernard Herrmann um, is basically like the granddaddy of, of the Hans Zimmer contemporary thriller science fiction sound all of these little cells of repeated sounds the da 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 that you hear on every the high budget thing uh is herman if you go back to something like vertigo or um he he took these little lego blocks of rhythmic cells and just kind of moved them around and that's what we have um and basically since samplers uh started sampling string sounds people like Hans Zimmer have been doing it very effectively in a kind of updated way what this piece of music does is it kind of atomizes that to, you know pun intended it it creates these little cells of of rhythmic string things that kind of move totally independently of each other it has been so abstracted to the point where they no longer need to be connected by tempo Every couple of bars, the tempo just shifts to something musically unrelated. It's not even a metric modulation for the music dorks out there. It is just a completely different tempo. And so that brings into my second reason why it is the most Christopher Nolan piece of music <laughs> of all time. The dude is obsessed with different temporal planes. If you watch Inception or... Uh, interstellar this all this like what's what's time for me is different for time for you and I'm going to use the magic of filmmaking to show how time moves differently for us and all these di different stories weaving back in and in and out and it's like kind of a headache but it's his thing and this piece of music the way that it goes from one tempo to a completely different one to a completely different one and gels it all together in an actual cohesive piece of music. Like I I'm pretty sure Christopher Nolan's head exploded when he heard it for the first time. There's, there's got to be no better piece of music made for a specific director than this one. And I think that that in and of itself is probably why this thing will win the award. It definitely will. I think that no other piece of music from a film this year comes even close to like crystallizing the film that it's it's writing for. I don't think it's that, uh, and it's not even that different from other film music. It just kind of found a new way in to to the vocabulary of of big budget, um, Nolan esque thrillers. So yeah, uh, this has been my um, TED talk. 
my my nerd corner. Yeah, <laughs> you may all go outside and touch grass now. <laughs> we love it. Just pedaling back. To be fair, I have a pretty dope sound system when I was watching it at home. Nice. Go ahead, brag. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Humble brag. <laughs> and and okay. And and well, in all seriousness, but you're you're a composer. Like, did it feel like too much muchness to you? Did it feel like a lot? Well, for clarity, and to be fair, I'm not a composer, but I do select composers on a daily basis. I it was a lot. And I I actually the reason that I I agree, completely agree with you, Louie, is that I, I think that first song, it set the tone, it knocked people out of their brains, <laughs> including Christopher Nolan. And I I didn't, it, you're right, I didn't, it didn't feel like I had the space to breathe. I, I felt like I, I bit off a bunch of my nails <laughs> because it was just so like looming and intense but I do think he creates these visceral reactions based on his, you know, cinematography, but also the music. And um, I don't know, it's such a contrast in regards to American fiction or the killers of Flower Moon, where you really do kind of just settle into what you're watching versus what you're listening to. Um, I wanted more of Can You Hear the Music woven throughout, and it didn't come until the very end. Interesting. Also, just as a side note, no chemistry between uh, Emily Blunt and uh, the main character. <laughs> Killian <laughs> Murphy. Like, like, are must... they actually married? <laughs> they had chemistry, though, with uh, What's-Her-Face, um, Florence, Florence Pugh. Oh, Florence Pugh and Killian Murphy had chemistry up the yin-yang. Yes. I'm always scared to say his name because I always want to. Yep. So it's Killian almost Murphy. like like Christopher Nolan doesn't write women very well. You, Weird. You say, yeah, huh? Weird. Yeah. But I did think Florence Pugh did an amazing job. I do. She was my borderline my favorite character in the movie. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah. Um, the, no, the last thing I'll say is not to bore the listeners of Skid's podcast, but there is next to no suspense in this race. This thing is winning. Um, it has swept practically every prize it's been up for. It has won the Golden Globe. It has won the Grammy. It has swept most critics' prizes. Ludwig Göransson has already won this prize. He won it for Black Panther five years ago. He is almost inevitably going to win it again. And to this conversation we're all having about why is it going to win? Partially, not to be a cynic, but to be a longtime Oscar observer, it's going to win because Oppenheimer seems to be building a Titanic-like sweep this year where it's possible it's going to win almost everything it's up for. That may be a reason. Another reason is, yeah, maybe... You know, this is not the music branch voting for this prize. Some people are going to vote for it because it is the most music. It's music you couldn't ignore. Um, that's what the cynic in me talking. But Ludwig Göransson is, you know, he is emerging as the next Hans Zimmer in terms of his versatility, in terms of his, you know, award winningness. So there are lots of good reasons why it's going to win the prize, too. It's not going to win best costume design. That's going to poor things. Fair enough. Well, I have a podcast about that. You can listen and see what the costume designers thought about those set. Um, but we're getting off track. Uh, I will say I am an Oppenheimer fan. The score when I saw in the theater wasn't for or against that overall. I, just, I liked it. I will say in getting ready for this podcast, every time I play that little bit, the can you hear the music? It, it really does. I, I, I feel tears welling up like every single time. It's that is really an music. amazing piece of music. Aim. He did it. 
<laughs> I did it, guy. You did it, Joe. All right. Well, moving on to our fifth film, Poor Things, score by Jerskin Fendricks. <laughs> So this film was very hard to watch. (laughs) I was very uncomfortable. Um, I could feel my body tense and be confused. This is not a movie review or a film review, but I did think it was much too long and a little too gory for what it needed to be. Um, Emma Stone did an amazing job as well. I thought that that the music was very avant-garde. This is not a listenable soundtrack that you would just play with a nice cup of coffee or tea in the morning. (laughs) This is something that you kind of have to mentally prep yourself to listen to. Um, There are, there's really no rhyme or reason to a lot of these elements. Uh, I think they intentionally do it a, a lot off kilter because the character and the storyline is so unique and everything is very jarring. Um, I, I think it, it added to the weirdness (laughs) of the movie. Um, And I think that uh, I think it it was intentional to make people uncomfortable because it is a very uncomfortable storyline where I mean, you will learn this in the first part, but, you know, a, a, a woman, an adult woman has a baby's brain implanted in her brain in the era of Frankenstein. So nothing really makes sense <laughs> about it, um, but it is a really weird, magical film and 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 score that I think people and critics will look at as something that took a lot of chances and I respect that. Yeah. I think that uh, from the, from the score in the score community, this, this work kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, I think mostly because the director Yorgos Lanthimos has never worked with a composer specifically for a commissioned score before Um, Yorgos is, pieces have always been um licensed music in the past and um so i think you know when you have such a unique uh directorial voice um when there's that big of a shift in the process like adding a composer there's always a kind of eyebrow raise um and this definitely is is i think it just surprised a lot of people the thing that i um, I'm thinking a lot about when thinking about the score is actually last year's everything everywhere all at once. I was going to make that analogy too. In terms of production, um, it is very much in league with the high contrast, almost collage like production uh, techniques that that score employed um, in interviews. The composer Driskin Fendricks uh 
says, you know, he wrote a lot of it, um, I think almost exclusively before he saw a picture, um, whether using a script or kind of a, a style guide, a lookbook, um, sets, costumes, character sketches. Um, so he had a lot of the documents um, that would eventually make up the story, but I don't think a lot of it was made um, in the traditional sense to picture. Now that's kind of surprising because in the past, the Academy has disqualified movies that um, where elements were written before the film. So I guess I'd be interested to see if their criteria has changed or if they just decided to stop caring or, because I, I do think it's kind of a bogus um, rule in the past. And if it works for the movie and it's how the composer writes, then, then that's fine. Um, stylistically, I think that um, this movie is, like Jenny said, very bizarre, um, but I don't think it comes out of nowhere. Um, I think it's very in league with a very small corner of the pop world. Um, over in um, the UK, um, some people might know it as PC music. Um, mm -hmm. There's a hyper pop Hyperpop. I was going to invoke that word as well. Yeah, it's called the hyperpop movement. And it's basically is a kind of surrealist, high contrast, very avant-garde take on bubblegum pop music. Um, artists like Sophie or the artists of PC Music or Black Midi, which with whom he has collaborated in the past. Um, the DNA on the, on the American side, uh, 100 Gex is often cited as uh, the primary av avatars of hyperpop as well. Absolutely. And I think that it's very like um, everything everywhere all at once, the relationship to a kind of avant-garde pop tradition within the film score is that's another um, thing they have in common. So I think that the, the, the relationship it has to pop music is very contemporary, which is an interesting twist on a kind of a, what's basically a period piece. It's, you know, a Frankenstein tale. Um, I, you know, I think that there's, uh, time will tell if it, it gets dated really fast, but I think that the use of, of orchestral instruments, like a, like strings or harps or per orchestral percussion, to me, that might be the saving grace that it, he, that this film takes hyper pop, um, uh, tools and applies them to an orchestral or chamber music sound. I think it's pretty inventive. I think it's pretty cool. It is uh, very, I'm sure very polarizing to a lot of listeners, but uh, definitely a big swing. I, I, I do dig it. Yeah, I would call this this year's entry in what is starting to become an annual Oscar score contender of, you know, this year's indie rock crossover. Um, this seems to be happening more often. Last year's winner uh, by an artist who sometimes records as um, Vol Volker Bertelman, but sometimes records as Hauschka. Uh, we've already invoked everything everywhere all at once. That was credited to Sun Lux. Um, you've obviously seen more esteemed indie rockers like Johnny Greenwood. Um, but increasingly, you're starting to see this kind of, you know, quirk audio branding emerging in the score category and in a way i mean it's a it's a great fit with yorgos lanthimos's work it's funny i'm not i'm not getting the sense that anybody on this call is a huge lover of this film i i am not either and that's odd for me because i felt like i was almost 
a booster or an apologist for his movie a couple movies ago, The Lobster, which I borderline loved. And I know a lot of people didn't like it. Whereas this movie, Four Things, seems to be the one where Lanthimos has totally caught Hollywood. Like, you know, Hollywood people are praising this movie to the heavens. And it it left me a little cold as much as I admired the performances in it. Um, but one thing I've been saying since The Lobster about uh, Lanthimos as a director is he reminds me more than anything as the 21st century equivalent of Kubrick. He is the closest thing we have to a modern day Kubrick. And so I would say that this score reminds me most of what Kubrick did on A Clockwork Orange with Wendy Carlos. Um, if if you can think of Wendy Carlos, you know, and switched on Bach as like the hyper pop of its day, this is somehow the equivalent of that. And in terms of audio branding, it totally works. I mean, I was saying before we got live on the mic here that the very first track on the score, which I think is just called Bella and has this note bending quirk to it. marketing team for this movie is leaning heavily into that piece of music. It's in every trailer, every TV commercial I've seen. And it's extremely quirky. It's never going to be mistaken for, we're calling it hyper pop, but it's never going to be mistaken for radio pop music. Um, but the minute you hear it and you hear that note kind of bend, you know what kind of movie you're going to get. You know, it is not hiding the goods at all. Um, and so I would say it's effective music, even if you know, the movie leaves you a little chilly. I'll go on record saying I did like this film. I liked it just a little bit more than Barbie, but I like them both. They're both top 10 for me. They're basically the same movie, actually, although they have very different soundtracks. Interesting point. <laughs> and uh, and I love The Lobster. Chris, actually, I'm I'm with you on that. That's uh, that's uh, just one that every time I think about it, I'm I'm impressed. So, yeah, as far as how the score is on the film, I'm I'm maybe much like Oppenheimer and the watching, it didn't push me or pull me away from what I was experiencing in the film overall. It, it does seem very much of the, very much of yours's intent with the film. Yeah. I, I actually, Skid, that was so interesting that you compared it to Barbie because even in just the, the track Bella, like you hear these like almost like unwound strings that, make you feel like you're like kind of uh winding up a doll and <laughs> i just think that's really a, a cool comparison that you said i think also that it's really effective because you know i think that there's there is a mad scientist quality to the music um you can tell that things were chopped up and um pieces are connected that like shouldn't be connected in terms of, you know, oh, but that's a hard cut or that's a weird, the seams are showing on that, on that edit. And, you know, that high contrast, high juxtaposition compositional technique really does help the story um, in a way it, like it, it really does. It, it matches the thematic elements of the film. I think that, um, 
you know, sonic branding is a really, really apt way to talk about what a lot of scores are going for. Um, you know, there's the, on one hand, there's the Robbie Robertson and, um, John Williams approach, which is just like, we're going to tell story through music that develops and changes over time, you know, in the traditional sense, kind of music as a form of, of plotting change over time, you know, um, the contemporary approach is kind of repetition of a kind of branded element. And a lot of composers today use that approach. It's, it's in commercial music too. And, and I think that, you know, um, it definitely has its value, but I think it does whenever you hear a piece of music in a film, that's the same sound over and over again, whether it's like a Brahm in a, in a, Hans Zimmer score or it's um or it's a uh, you know the same jump scare sound in a horror film uh they're using a, a very like um contemporary media approach which is using a, a branded element and just kind of reusing it over and over again kind of like their own version of the NBC chimes um and I, I do think that that's a kind of um you know an approach it's a very, very new and different approach to music making for film. It's certainly not um, in in the tradition of of the classic film scores. So it's just something that like kind of shows this is this is kind of what the new the new uh, frontier of filmmaking is. It's more about kind of presenting sonic um, little, basically little sonic TikToks that just uh bite-sized little pieces of ideas here 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 and seeing what sticks um it's not bad it's not good it just i think it's a it's a big shift in how composers make music for film as opposed to how they did you know 50 years ago it's definitely a new approach that uh i'm starting to get used to a little bit more i will always love the john williams <laughs> and the uh Johan Johansson and all of them, but yeah, I, maybe it is meant to really throw you off your seat. The one I would put it in opposition to on this list of nominees is the very first one we discussed, American Fiction by Laura Cartman. I, you know, I I said that it was my favorite album to listen to just as an album, as like a continuous piece of music. This is the one I wouldn't say I found it torturous to listen to, but it's kind of like I love Louis' analogy of little pieces of branding or TikToks. That's exactly what it was. Like, here's this quirky thing. And if you're not enjoying that, wait two minutes. Here's this other quirky thing. Um, for a little bit of research for this segment, I even went back and listened to this guy's indie rock album. He records as, you know, Jerskin Fendrix, and he put out an album in 2020 called Winter Rice. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. And again, there are tracks on that album that shift tempos and styles within the space of five minutes. Um, it's kind of ADD music and that either works for you or it doesn't. I, I happen to like 100 Gex, the hyper pop group, but you know, your, your mileage may vary. And as a score, this is not an album I would want to play much as an album, but it's very effective as score music and, and say what you will about it. It might be the future to, to Louis's point. Well, you know, I think that there's nothing really new under the sun, like the, what this all dates back to is the very beginning of electronic music you know this technique called musique concrète where 
basically people would hold microphones up to a piece of burning charcoal and um, filter it and play it for two minutes. And that was, that was that piece. Right. And I do think that what's changing is not the avant-garde nature of music, but the delivery mechanism, you know, um, pieces are getting smaller and smaller. Contrast is getting higher and higher uh, because that's the way that our delivery mechanisms are changing. You know, we're not sitting down watching. It's it's kind of like the shot length in your average movie. You know, in the 70s, it was... Um, Languorous. Yeah. And now it's, I think the average shot length is four, four and a half seconds in, in your average movie. And it used to be like 20 seconds. Um, wow. So... And that's 40 years after the creation of MTV when they were already saying in the 80s that shot lengths got shorter. Yeah. And now this, here we are in the TikTok era and they've gotten even shorter than that. And 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 unless unless you're watching Shaun of the Dead for the longest longest shot. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing, is that like there's always going to be people who zag when culture zigs and people who's, you know, and so I I don't see this. Maybe I'm jaded, but I don't see this score as particularly like wacky or crazy or avant-garde because um it really is in league i think with um a lot of what's happening in pop culture um it just sounds a little different because i think we're not so used to hearing a harp do that or like we're not used to hearing a a string quartet do that or even a, a feature film like sound like this but you know i think it's definitely part of the cultural shift towards high contrast, just like shorter attention span, you know, kind of a, a more is more uh, mentality. Also, our, I think our ears are changing. I think the way that we ingest sound and music, just like you are mentioning as far as shorter shot times and cut quicker cuts, um, TikTok, this whole world of, Short attention spans, I think it's a totally different wormhole, but I feel like AI music is also, I am fearful that our ears will start to adapt. I'm not fearful of this genre, but I think, as you say, you know, the more, I guess, exposure that it gets, the more that we accept it and that we, you know, take it and ingest it as something that feels a little more normal. So it's interesting that yes, it is a, an homage and a throwback to something that was created a, a while back, but I do feel like a wider audience is now accepting it. And um, it's just interesting. It's interesting. I'm such a, I think I was an anthropologist in another life. <laughs> I for one welcome our new ant overlords. Yeah. <laughs> we have to be on record as being okay with this right? <laughs> or else the computer will know. <laughs> well i think we lost all of our short attention span listeners some time ago but i have been savoring this nonetheless we've got one more segment and that is for me to ask you guys what other 2023 films did you think were noteworthy for their scores one of them i'm surprised didn't make the the list because so many people talked about it in terms of score was michael levy's work for the zone of interest did you guys catch that movie Yes, I saw it. No, but I have heard a lot of the you know clips of the film, and it's absolutely devastating. 
yeah, it's on my list of things to watch and we'll get there. Yeah. I mean, it, talk about not an easy watch. That movie is not an easy watch. Um, and I have very mixed feelings about it as a film. Honestly, I've heard everything from raves to pans on it. And I find myself somewhere in the middle, but I did think the sound design and the score was amazing in that movie. Um, and when I say sound design, I mean, just the way the movie opens, you'll see, I'm not spoiling it for you guys, but like, there's like sound is almost the first thing you see, so to speak in the movie um, before you even see, you know, traditional shots. Um, I would have thought given the way zone of interest punched above its weight in these nominations, that that would have made the nominee, the nominees list. I was a little surprised it didn't. I mean, I'm surprised that the era's tour isn't on this list. <laughs> Uh, if you know, if only for uh, you know the fact that it generated a new number one hit, right? So exactly. You know, I think uh, Chris, to your point about sound, seeing sound. Um, one of the things I think a lot about when I'm writing, especially something that's supposed to be unsettling or, or horror is the kind of, is the, just the mere fact that um, music is the only art form that physically touches your body. Um, you, mm. you cannot stop sound from hitting you the way that you can stop. You can close your eyes or you can walk away from a painting um, or you can simply not, um, not engage with a piece of sculpture or sound is intrusive in a way that is impossible to avoid. Uh, it's why, you know, people call the cops on their loud neighbors, <laughs> um, but they don't call the cops on their neighbors who are watching a bad movie. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, it's truly, uh, it is the, it's like the most powerful weapon in the, the tool belt of a filmmaker that, um, if you really want to deeply move an audience, you've got to hit them in the ears, um, because they really don't have a choice in the matter. Um, and for something like zone of interest, like, you know, obviously I haven't seen it, but I have heard, um, the cues and I, you know, um, I just think that uh, it's not surprising to me that sound is the unsettling, the, the truly unsettling element of the film. Um, and I think that that's, you know, something that, that, that I think about every year when we do this, this podcast, like how many times, um, you know, music is just like kind of, uh, music and sound is pretty criminally underrated in the the consciousness of of the viewing public and and I think about all these films like if there were no if there was no music in it and it would just be like just so deeply bizarre and I know that's kind of an obvious thing to say but um, especially when you get into the horror and um, the kind of terrifying realm uh, music is a particularly uh, crucial element. The Zone of Interest was nominated in the sound category. So in terms of sound production and sound editing, for those who are interested in a, in a deeper dive, we kicked off the Oscars series 
this year with a discussion of the sound nominees and, and we talk about it in more depth. And while we don't pick winners on that episode, I do think it's got a good chance maybe of, of taking the award for a lot of reasons that are more, again, how voting works, but I, I think it's got a good chance of taking the sound award. That would be an interesting, not even compensation, just kind of just reward for the one element of the movie that I was most over the moon about, honestly. Yeah, this year was tricky. I feel like there it was a little dry as far as just standout winners. I feel like there's been other years where you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know which one's going to win because they're all so amazing. I mean, I had a really great time watching Asteroid City. with the spots of score and cocaine bear actually was just <laughs> a joy to watch. <laughs> But I, I did feel like this year it was a little dry. I felt the same way. And I, I found myself thinking about what I would talk about in this in this segment. And the only thing that I would recommend or, you know, wanted to shout out was, um, unfortunately, this year, the film scoring world lost, I think, probably one of the best artists um, that it had in Ryochi Sakamoto, who died earlier in, in 2023. Um, I do believe that he was working up until his death. Wow. If there's anyone who I think is deserving of more attention in the um, realm of movie music and um, and film composition, I think it's Ryuichi Sakamoto. So um, well, I, I don't necessarily have an answer, uh, Skid, for you for um, what scores for this year really did it for me, but I would just recommend everyone take a, a stroll down the discography of, of Ryuichi Sakamoto. Including the Last Emperor score, which I think we've talked about on this uh, segment before, and it was a winner for uh, Best Score uh, with David Byrne back in uh, 1987, 88 Oscars. been very celebrated and still i think underrated you know it's like one of those things where i just don't think you can give enough credit uh so but yeah the last emperor the revenant um merry christmas mr lawrence it's all amazing and um this year i spent a lot of time thinking about his legacy and, and his work so so do you guys like the score to air I mean, all I think about with air is talk about needle drops. Jesus Christ. They had some music budget for that. Thing. It was yeah, like they did. Bruce Springsteen, Dire Straits, Cindy Lauper. Boom, boom, boom. Like, yeah, it's like there goes another half million dollars. That's what I all I was thinking while I was watching that movie. Like that was expensive. That was expensive. That was uh, all they needed to do is just mention the premise. And I'm sure people flexed on those prices a little. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But no, you're right. So many needle drops. I, I remember nothing about the score. Like, did it have a good score? I honestly don't even recall. 
the only moment in the score that I remember, and I actually stopped it, I rewound it, and I took notes on on the music was when Matt Damon is watching the tape and he's rewinding. Yes. And that moment, I do, I do remember that as being a um as, as a good score moment. Now that you mention it, Jenny. I agree. That was a great moment. Good film. Oh, and also Past Lives was quite good. Um, ah, yes. The duo from Grizzly Bear. Doing some pretty interesting stuff with, you know, electronic music and kind of in the same ballpark conversation is everything everywhere all at once and poor things and electronic score with a lot of high contrast and a lot of edited material. And, um, but it also kind of reminds me of, of some of the more, uh, chambery pieces that have been, um, celebrated by the Oscars like Minari or, um, Moonlight. Um, there's just something really beautiful about, um, about obviously about that film, but also the score. So that, that might be another one to check out. Well, as always, this conversation has been educational. I really appreciate you guys uh, coming in, sharing your insights. And uh, on that note, we'll call it a wrap. Great seeing everybody. Thanks, Skid. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this is a blast. Thank you. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, below the line, one word dot biz. That's B-I-Z. As I mentioned at the start, we're in the final stretch of this year's Oscar podcast, with only two episodes remaining. If you've missed any of the nine that came before, you've still got time to catch up before the ceremony on March 10th. Closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line. <laughs>